You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We come to a cultural moment in which it is increasingly common for the Christian faith to be disparaged in the public square. Now, I'll be the first to say things aren't as bad as they could be. So far as I know, nobody's just disappeared in the middle of the night. So I don't want to overplay the crisis or play into that kind of sense of panic or the world is over or it's the end of the world as we know. Like, that's not the point. Nevertheless, it is the case that in recent years, it's become increasingly common and really culturally acceptable for the Christian faith to be publicly disparaged. A couple years ago, a prominent TV personality compared hearing, to, hearing from Jesus to mental illness. You should be ashamed of yourselves, is the point. For years now, a group called the New Atheists has declared in print and online and in public that the Christian faith is not intellectually rigorous fairy tales. Public shame. You don't have to be on social media very long to find somebody disparaging the Christian faith. So we're in this moment. I don't think that's a surprise to us. And it's important to remember that that our cultural moment isn't necessarily representative of global Christianity. Like there are significant places around the world where the gospel is thriving in public, largely in the global south. It's like the Spirit of God said, I'm moving south for a while. And in Africa and places in South America and around the world, there are explosions of faith in Jesus. In China, where there is far more significant persecution against Christians than the kind of social disparagement we get, the church is literally exploding. Like, you don't put signs out front saying, hey, we're going to have church, right? You go under the cover of darkness and keep the lights off. Forget the air conditioning and the comfy chairs, and you kind of sing in a whisper. Right? So I want us to keep things in perspective. We're not playing up a hysteria, but we do want to be attentive to the context the Lord Jesus has given us for His mission. So this is kind of the world we live in. The philosophers and the the kind of theologians, people who kind of work in theories, call this cultural moment a post-Christian culture. Is that a word you've heard? If it's not, it just means a period of time after Christianity has been influential. Like the influence of Christianity in the public square has waned significantly, Post just means after, and so we're kind of in this post-Christian period. And that's helpful for me because it represents a connection point with the early church. Right? If the church is not the dominant influence in the culture, then we have something in common with Paul and Timothy, don't we? Because I guarantee you, In the mid-60s, in the first century, the Apostle Paul was not the dominant influence. He had influence, but he wasn't dominant. Now, he wasn't in a post-Christian culture. He was in what? A pre-Christian culture, wasn't he? But nevertheless, whether it's 
pre or post, in neither case does the church have dominant influence in the culture. One voice among many. And it's okay in their world, and it appears that it's okay in our world now, to sort of publicly shame apostles or Christians to kind of manipulate compliance. Because that's the function, isn't it? That's the function of public derision, whether it's the first century or the most recent century. If we deride you in public and make fun of you, you're going to be a lot less likely at work to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Because you're afraid. You're fearful. Maybe there'll be kickback. Maybe somebody will accuse me of proselytizing or fancy word for telling people about Jesus. And then maybe I'll get written up or maybe I'll get fired and I sure don't want that because i got to put food on the table. And so that's the function here, isn't it? One Christian writer from an earlier century remarked that shame is fear arising from the anticipation of blame, right? So we're going to blame you, we're going to shame you, and we're going to make you afraid so that you don't come around here talking about Jesus. Kind of pick those up. You could catch some of that in this first chapter of 2 Timothy, couldn't you? Where Paul talks about the possibility that you could be ashamed of the gospel, of a crucified Savior. Crucifixion, as you know, was the most shameful experience, way to die. Like it was ultimate shame in the ancient world. And so that's the function, whether it's First century, 21st century, whether it's ancient Rome, modern North American cultural context. So I want, I want you to, like, we've got some things in common with Paul, don't we? We're on the same page. We jive in here. We're good. You feel like you and Paul are just BFFs now, right? You're like right there, your best friends, common experience. Question then becomes what do we do in that context? And that's Paul's encouragement to Timothy, isn't it? Paul is asking, or maybe we put it this way, Paul is inviting Timothy to ask the now what question. And Paul has an answer for Timothy's now what question. You live in this pre-Christian culture. You live in this it's okay to shame thing, shame Christianity publicly culture, Timothy. You're at risk of being ashamed and you might sort of draw back and you might be a little hesitant to, to get out in the marketplace and talk about a crucified Savior because that's shameful in the world we live in. Now what? What are you going to do? And Paul's response to that, for Timothy and for us, and the thing, like, if, like hold on to this. Because it's crucial if we want to be fruitful and effective and faithful for Jesus in our day. For Paul, for Timothy, for us, confidence in Christ destroys the fear of shame. Because that's how shame functions, we've already observed. You shame somebody, they experience fear. Fear results in inaction. You just keep quiet about your Jesus. But for Paul to Timothy, confidence in Christ is an antidote to that. It destroys that. It casts out fear. Confidence in Christ destroys the fear of shame. It deals with it. It rocks it. It removes it. Now before we jump into that, we're going to reflect on how that emerges from these texts. It may be helpful 
to kind of just get a sense of who Timothy is and his relationship to Paul. Second Timothy, we've got First Timothy just before it. You may want to go back and read that. Probably written a good bit earlier. Doesn't sound like Paul's in prison when he writes First Timothy. Uh, in my view, all of these letters to Timothy come later in Paul's life. So kind of after Acts, we've been working through Acts the last eight months. I think what we have here doesn't come during Paul's imprisonment in Acts because, it, because you heard Acts 28 last week if you were with us, and it doesn't sound very painful, does it? I mean, he's able to kind of come and go a little bit. He's chained to a Roman guard, but things are pretty chill. Folks come up and they meet him and they're like, hey, Paul, we're coming over on Tuesday. Let's have coffee and talk theology. You know, that sort of thing, right? As we read through 2 Timothy, it's going to sound a lot more harsh. This isn't like I'm under house arrest and I kind of got to deal with it and you'll have to come see me because I can't come see you. Like, like Paul, in this instance, feels far more desperate. And so it looks like this is probably another imprisonment. The first one, this is, I think, a, a feasible reconstruction. The Acts ends. Paul's there for a couple years. The Jews who brought charges against him don't really press the charges. We read in Acts that like, they hadn't sent any letters. There was no formal accusation. The Jewish community in Rome hadn't heard that there was a problem between Paul and the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And that sounds like they weren't really pressing the issue. They didn't want to put the resources in to driving all the way to Rome to deal with this conflict. Paul was gone. That's good enough. We don't have to put up with him if he's on the other side of the empire. He wasn't in one of the dungeon-like prisons that the Romans could have tossed him in. He was renting an apartment and they had a guy hanging out with him to make sure he didn't run off and do something he shouldn't do. Pretty chill, pretty relaxed. So it's entirely the case that that imprisonment ended without any guilty verdict. And Paul was free to go on in ministry for a while. And then the letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus as well represent that later period of ministry in his life. Taking 2 Timothy at its word, Paul was later re-imprisoned. And church tradition has him being executed by the Roman Empire in the mid-60s of the first century. So that's kind of where we are in the timeline. What about the relationship with Timothy? Here is Paul describing how much he loves this young man. Timothy is like his beloved child. It's like his son in the faith. And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe there's been somebody in your life who you had the opportunity, the Lord brought you together, and you just had the opportunity to offer them so much, to care for them, to offer them life, to, to, to offer counsel and wisdom. And I know some of you, because you've shared this with me, like you keep your eyes open for those kinds of opportunities because you want to you pass on what the Lord has given to you. And I'm grateful for that. Many of us will remember a father or mother figure in the faith, won't we? Several months ago, you folks got to meet Walter Albritton when he came to preach here. Like, that guy's my Paul. Since I was 10 years old, he's been treating me the way Paul treated Timothy. Wisdom, counsel, opportunity, influence. Offering me those things. And so, this is how Paul feels about Timothy. I want to read you a, slight, a small excerpt from Philippians where Paul tells the Philippians 
the sort of character Timothy has. And it'll kind of fill in the picture here, and you'll get a sense as we read 2 Timothy about the kind of person we're talking about. This is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul named Timothy as a co-author on several of his letters. Philippians uh, is one of them. Also, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Colossians. So like, Paul is saying, this guy's voice is with my... Like, we are together here speaking with one voice. We're on the same page. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus, Philippians, to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. And here's what he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them, whoever them are, <laughs> all of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth you know. How like a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I will come soon also. And so you get a sense like, like this guy matters to Paul, doesn't he? Like if everybody else falls away, it will not, like it's the most heartbreaking if Timothy falls away. Other people grow ashamed of the gospel. We read about people at the end of this first chapter. I'm not going to try to pronounce their names again. You can, you can if you'd like to, but they were intense pronunciation exercises, weren't they? Some of them have become ashamed. Some of them have fallen away. Some of them have turned away. One guy is still faithful. He's unashamed. Sought out Paul when he got to Rome. But people are falling away. People are, are fearful. They're, they've grown ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, I don't want that to happen to you because you matter to me. You're like a child to me. You are my son who I love. So that's the bond we have. Like When you read this letter, don't just read it like, oh yeah, that's informative. This is a father offering his son his final wisdom before his death. This is serious stuff, isn't it? I mean, really, really, really serious stuff. Timothy is Paul's co-worker. They traveled together in Acts. They wrote letters together. They planted churches together. Paul would send Timothy off as his delegate. you got to trust somebody if you're going to have them represent you in another city. Amen? Serious stuff. So this is the relationship. This is how things are going here. And the central exhortation that he offers to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 8, is don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Right? And there's special reason he might say, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And what's the testimony of our Lord? It's the gospel, isn't it? Christ died. And how did he die? He was crucified. And crucifixion, we've already said, is ultimate shame in the ancient world strip you naked, beat you till you are a bloody pulp, and hang you up and leave you until the birds eat you up or you just die of suffocation because you can't support yourself anymore. Ultimate shame. Or of me, his prisoner, Paul says, because in the ancient Roman world, prison was deeply shameful, wasn't it? Deeply shameful. Like if somebody you know got locked up, you might have some serious reservations about going to see him or 
taking them some food, and there were not three square meals a day in a Roman prison. Lucky if you get some stale bread crust. It was incumbent upon your family or your kinship group to to support you, to make sure you got fed or somebody brought you some water or something like that. The Romans, they don't care if you die in there. Not their problem. Massive shame to the extent that family members sometimes or neighbors would say, you know what? I love you, but I can't risk being associated with you right now. So Paul, like, that's his word to Timothy. Like, don't be afraid, don't be ashamed of the crucified Jesus or of the imprisoned Paul. Crucial pieces there. The basis of his exhortation is the character of God, isn't it? I love how as he's expressing his gratefulness to Timothy, there's this, this sense of continuity. He's like, remember your mother and your grandmother. Lois and Eunice who taught you to love the Bible, who taught you the Scriptures, who read to you the stories about how God made promises to Abraham and how God delivered His people through the waters of the Red Sea and and how when, when, when His people had sinned against Him and rebelled, He sent rescuers again and again and again and He rescued His people. And even when they were forced out of their land because of their idolatry and their sinfulness, He was great in mercy and great in grace. And He comes and He rescues them and He he brings them back and He gathers them home and He forgives their sin. Don't forget, Timothy. Don't forget the faith in which you've been nurtured and what's been cultivated. Like, don't forget these things and and honor. Honor your mother. Honor your your grandmother. And remember the gift of God. This is verse 6. I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Paul's talking about basically the ordination of Timothy. He's like, you are commissioned. Preach the Word. Preach the Gospel. Plant churches. Raise up leaders. Be faithful. In that moment, when you're set aside for ministry, God is at work graciously. And here's what He doesn't give you, Timothy is told. He doesn't give you a spirit of cowardice. Notice the contrast there, right? You're about to be told, don't be ashamed. Contrast, like a coward. This verse has special meaning for me. I remember as a child, a young child, whenever I found myself fearful, uh, my mom would come and quote this verse and kind of encourage me to just kind of under my breath or out loud even pray this for God is not giving you the, the translation we use said God is not giving me a spirit of fear giving you a spirit of fear but a power love and a sound mind and uh, that was just a constant thing like if I had had a nightmare or if there were you know boogeyman in the closet whatever it was right any experience of fear as a child this was the thing, like God's gift to you. is isn't fear, it's not cowardice. It's not terror, it's not horror. Power, love, sound mind. Confidence in Jesus who loves you and who is with you. 
And I found even later in life, if I found, my moment, found myself in moments where, where fear kind of began to rise up, we don't really confess fear a lot, do we? We're not really honest about that, but we experience it. We experience what it means to be afraid. And then later, like just as I grew up, guess what happened? <laughs> guess what verses of Scripture would come very quickly to mind? And guess who I have to thank for that? Just like Timothy has his mother and grandmother to thank for. So this is Paul's thing. He's like, listen, man, this is crucial. You've been set aside to lead the church, to lead the ministry. And some of you are leaders in ministry and we're, we're involved in different kinds of things like this. And he says, you're going to be faced with moments where you will be tempted to turn coward and run. It will happen. But that's not the spirit. That's not, the, the, that's not God's gift to you. God instead offers a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I think that power and love is really important because like, power without love can be really painful. Power without love is not something you want to be around, is it? <laughs> but power with love is always after your best. And that's really a portrait of God, isn't it? Infinitely powerful and perfect in love. And so here, basically Paul is reminding Timothy that God wants you, Christian, to embody His character. He's, he wants you to walk with a sense of, of confidence, of, of power, confidence in the Gospel, confidence in Jesus, but it needs to be mixed and filled with love so that it doesn't break people. And self-discipline. So that you know the what you ought to do, and you know how to do it, and you know when to do it, and you are able to do it. So you got that whole thing, right, set up. You could be this kind of person. You could be a coward, an unloving coward who doesn't know what to do and how to do it or have the conviction to do it. Anybody want to sign up for that one? <laughs> or you could be the kind of person Paul is calling Timothy to be. Don't be ashamed, then he says, but join with me in suffering. And this is how it works its way out. So you get this vision of who Paul wants Timothy to be, but then the question is, Paul, how do I do that? And I wonder if we've asked that question before too, right? Maybe when we're praying or maybe in our small groups, our comment to God has been, God, like I know what you want me to do. How do I do it? I'm scared. Can't tell them that, but I am. I'm going to get opposed. It could be dangerous. We live in this post-Christian culture, because you say that in your prayers all the time. We live in a world where, where Christianity is publicly maligned. Like, do you really want me to take this stand? And I'm not sure I have the confidence to do it. And Paul says, when you're in that moment, it's not in your own strength that makes you able to stand. Like, you don't have what it takes. You really don't have what it takes. Paul's answer to Timothy, his answer to us, is if you want to destroy the fear of shame, if you want to be unashamed, eyes on Jesus. Single focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confidence in Christ. Confidence in the Gospel. Confidence in His work. Confidence in His nature. Confidence in His perfect love and His ultimate power and His excessive mercy and His unending grace. Confidence in Christ destroys the fear of shame. 
And that's the logic of the whole thing here. Just listen to it again with those words in your mind. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Relying on the power of God. And how do you know the power of God? What does it look like? He saved us. He called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. This isn't, remember, not according to our power, but the power of God. Not according to our effort, energy, works, ability, smarts, education, degrees, income, reputation. None of those things. Not according to what we can contribute, but, Paul says, according to His own purpose and grace. You want confidence in Christ? Don't try to muster it up. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has saved us, who has loved us, who has rescued us. Notice just how he, he takes Timothy's vision and says, you could be distracted. You could be cowardice in your distraction. You could be ashamed. You could fall prey to the fear of shame. Maybe you're worried about getting locked up because everybody knows you've been writing letters with me and I'm locked up. Maybe you're afraid of that. Maybe you're worried about it. There's real danger, real danger in following Jesus. What does Paul do? He just starts talking about all the good things that God has done. He reminds Timothy of the grace of God. God, you are so good. He saved us. He called us. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's posture toward His people has been one of grace into infinite past. Like before the ages, His posture towards us, knowing our sinfulness, knowing our rebellion, His posture toward His people is grace. 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 And our response to that is trust. And another word for trust in the New Testament is confidence. Confidence in Jesus to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Can I save myself? Can I forgive my sins? Can I change my heart? Do I have the strength? Do I have the power to do that? Can I raise my dead body from the grave on the second, the day that Jesus returns? No. All of those things are things that Paul says, this is the power of God. The grace has been given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, forever ago, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. This is Paul's Gospel. This is the good news. Christ died for us and was raised for us. His blood forgives our sins and His resurrection ensures our life, gives us life, and guarantees that when He shows up again, the words that you said in the creed just a little while ago will become a reality. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Life and immortality is aimed at that day. And these are gifts of God. I don't have the power to do that. If I were to say, I'm confident in myself to forgive my sins and raise myself from the dead, that would be misplaced confidence, wouldn't it? It would be folly. But if I say, I'm confident in Jesus who loved me and gave Himself for me, 
who died and was raised to forgive my sins, change my character, transform my life, and raise my dead body up when He comes again. That is well-placed confidence. Paul says, if you want to be unashamed of the Gospel in the workplace, if you want to be unashamed of the Gospel when you're out with the guys and you're, you're playing golf or hunting or, or whatever, like kids, sports field, coaches are hanging out, whatever it is, and people are kind of making fun of Christianity or whatever your, whatever your context is, if you want to be unashamed in those moments, confidence in Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I remember one time I was in college, I was playing some music at this place. <laughs> The guys in the band were kind enough to play some stuff I wrote. I listened to it a while back. I wish they hadn't been so kind. It probably would have saved us a whole lot of embarrassment. Uh, but one of the things talked about Jesus, and it was you know a college student trying to write cool songs about Jesus, right? And so I did it. And I remember being in this public place and having a guitar in my hand, and I'm singing this. I don't even remember what the words were. I wrote them. I don't remember what they were. But it said something about Jesus, and I had this fear. Like, can I go into, like, Auburn College scene and talk about Jesus, like, on a Thursday night down the road, like, on College Street? Like, do you, like what happens there? And I was afraid. Will I get asked back? Somebody, like, throw something at me? Those are probably unfounded fears. They weren't listening anyway. <laughs> But in that moment, like my eyes were off Jesus and the coward, the fear, the shame was right here. In a moment like that, when you're worried, fear and blame and shame are on their way, Remember the gift of God who saved us in Jesus Christ and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Paul's thing is, it's not just for you. You now have a vocation. You have a calling. So get to work. And if you want to have confidence in Christ, I mean, if you want to not be ashamed of Jesus in your calling, to follow Jesus, change the world, to bless the nations, to, to, to be the light of Christ in word and deed to your family, your colleagues, to your community. And if you want to do that without fear, confidence in Jesus is the only antidote the fear of shame. We do well, brothers and sisters, to meditate on these things. Like spend some time when you get up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night meditating on the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. For this Gospel, Paul says, I was appointed a herald. There's the job. Timothy has a vocation. We share their vocation. 
Paul says, I suffer as I do because Jesus called me. He loved me. He called me. And he says, I'm not ashamed because I know the one I trust. I know the one I trust. I've put my confidence in him, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. And so he tells Timothy, hold on to the standard of sound teaching. Whenever you get into, for Paul, it was a pre-Christian cultural context. For us, it's a post-Christian cultural context. But in each context, when there's opposition to Christian teaching, the temptation is to say, well, you know, we can do without that doctrine, right? We can sort of, you know, I mean, we can still do Jesus and not do hell, right? Because that sounds mean, very mean. I don't have to tell you the Christian doctrines that aren't popular anymore. It doesn't mean we get combative and sort of say, no, we're faithful Christians and this is what we believe and we're angry at you because of it. No, like just, we can be disagreeable with a smile on our face. Because remember, our posture either tells, it tells a story about our God we can hold our own, we can hold the sound teaching and be filled with joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be opposed. We will be opposed. Nevertheless, we are confident in the Lord Jesus Christ and that confidence destroys fear. and allows us to obey Paul's exhortation to Timothy do not be ashamed of him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right? You can hold to sound teaching with love. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. So here's the rub. Fear paralyzes. And that's the tactic in a pre-Christian or a post-Christian cultural context. We're going to shame you so you'll be afraid, so you'll be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. We don't need your Jesus around here. If we fall prey to that, the mission crumbles. You can take follow Jesus, change the world, and turn off the screens and pull down the signs, and go do something else. Shame is aimed at fear, which results in paralysis, and when we are paralyzed and inactive, our mission stops. Who's on board for that? I hope not. On the con in contrast, gospel courage bears fruit. Gospel courage is always fruitful. The Lord Jesus Christ uses the church's proclamation of His gospel to save people from darkness and sin and bring them in to His purposes and His life. Gospel courage bears fruit. I mentioned China earlier where they worship in secret often. It takes courage to go to church in secret, friends. And I wonder how many of us would show up 
gospel courage is producing unimaginable fruit in the country of China right now. And I wonder what it would look like in North America if the church was committed to the vision we get in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Courage. 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 That's the invitation today. Paul tells Timothy to rekindle the gift of God that is within you. Not of cowardice, but of gospel courage. I wonder how many of us need to rekindle the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us in our baptism, when we made our public profession of faith, when we gave ourselves to Him again even more deeply and more fully. In each of those instances, He is giving gifts. I wonder how many of us need today to rekindle that, to reignite it, so that the flame of courage burns with intensity in the people of God. And the gospel will bear fruit by God's grace, to the glory of King Jesus, and in the power of His Spirit. As I pray, perhaps you want to offer yourself to the Lord again. You may want to come and kneel for a moment and ask the Spirit of God to rekindle in you the gift that He had given before. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.